Hello again, welcome to our third podcast from Asir Central Hospital, Emergency Medicine Department. This is Dr. Athir Aritabi, I'm your host for today. Today we are joined by a new member, Ahud Shahrani, she's second year residency of Saudi Board of Emergency Medicine. Welcome, Ahud. Uh, hi, Athir, and thank you for having me, and I'm glad to be here. So last episode, we covered breathing, and today we move on to circulation. Mainly, we're going to discuss shock. So, Dr. Ahud, can you define shock? So, uh, shock is the transition between life and death. Uh, it's a result from a widespread failure of the circulatory system to oxygenate and nourish the body adequately. So, can you tell us more about shock, mainly about the pathophysiology of it? So, if we are going to talk about subcellular level, shock first affects the mitochondria. Uh, mitochondria function as the lowest oxygen function in the body, but they consume almost the, all the oxygen used by the body. More than 95% of the aerobic chemical and energy come from the mitochondrial combustion of the fuel substrate, like fat, carbohydrate, and ketone, with the oxygen into carbon dioxide and water. When the mitochondrial have inadequate oxygen, the cell catabolizes the fuel to lactate, which accumulates and diffuse into the blood, then an irreversible series of intracellular cascades lead to cellular dysfunction, organ failure, and ultimately death. Okay, so now that we understand the pathophysiology of shock, can you list and explain the four types of shock? So uh, we have hypovolemic, obstructive, distributive, and cardiogenic. But before we start to explain this type of shock, we need to know how to empirically recognize the patient in shock by following these criteria. L appearance or altered mental status, heart rate more than 100 beats per minute, respiratory rate more than 20 breaths per minute, or partial pressure of CO2 less than 32 uh, millimercury, arterial base deficit less than minus 4, or lactate more than 4, urine output less than 0.5 milliliter per kg per hour, arterial hypotension more than 30 minutes, duration, or a continuum. So let's start with hemorrhagic shock. Can you tell us more about it? So we have three types for hemorrhagic shock, simple hemorrhage, hemorrhage with hyperperfusion, and hemorrhagic shock. In simple hemorrhage, you have a bleeding, but with a normal pulse rate, less than 100 beats per minute, and normal respiratory rate, also normal blood pressure, and normal base deficit. In hemorrhage with hyperperfusion, you will have a bleeding with a base deficit less than minus 4, or resistant pulse rate more than 100 beats per minute. In hemorrhagic shock, you will have a bleeding with at least four criteria that we mentioned earlier, the criteria of shock. So injury of hemorrhagic shock can be induced by two phases, from injury itself and from your resuscitation. Hypovolemic leads to two phases, as we said. The first, it will decrease the perfusion to non-critical organs and manifest as acidemia, decline in the base deficit, more negative, and increase in the alveolar ventilation. For example, if the patient lost a third of the total blood volume, the cardiovascular reflex can no longer adapt, leading to hypotension and then activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and stress hormone will be released, stimulating the glycogen lysis, lipolysis, and hypokalemia in effort to support the systemic venous resistance and perfusion to the vital organs. The second phase for the organ injuries is by the resuscitation, as we said. 
So resuscitation can lead to liver injury, uh, ARDS, acute tubular necrosis. So just because they have been resuscitated from severe hypovolemic shock does not mean that they are out of the world. Classical teaching defined hemorrhagic shock into four stages. Stage 1, 2, 3, and 4. In stage 1, total blood loss will be less than 750 ml, around 15% of the total blood volume. The patient in this stage will have a normal vital sign. In stage 2, blood loss will increase to 1,500 ml, between 15 to 30% of the blood volume. In this stage, patients start to be tachycardic. For stage 3, blood loss will reach up to 2 liters, and the patient will start to be hypotensive. And in stage 4, the blood loss will be more than 2 liters and will reach more than 40% of the blood volume. In this stage, patient will be obtended and severely hypotensive. Thank you, Ahort, for the well-rounded explanation of hemorrhagic shock. Can we move on to obstructive shock now? So for obstructive shock, it's defined as a shock resulting from physical obstruction that limits cardiovascular flow. All main causes are intrathoracic. We have massive pulmonary embolism, cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax, valvular dysfunction like uh, critical aortic stenosis, acute thrombosis of prosthetic valve. We have also congenital heart defect like closure of BDA, critical idiopathic subaortic stenosis, which is known as HECOM, and air embolism. Each etiology has his own sign and symptom and a way of treatment. So until now, we discussed hemorrhagic shock and obstructive shock. Can we move on to distributive shock? Can you tell us more about it? Uh, distributive shock, which is also known as vasodilatory shock, it's characterized by vasodilation and leak of a fluid from the fizzle, which eventually leads to decrease the perfusion and blood flow to the vital organ, including brain, heart, and kidneys. Distributive shock has a five main subtypes. Septic shock, anaphylactic shock, central neurogenic shock, drug overdose, adrenal crisis. Great. Can you shed more light on the most important types? In septic shock, we will start to define sepsis, which is a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by dysregulator's response to the infection. End-organ damage is identified as an acute change in total sequential organ failure assessment score, SOFA score. The total score will be two and more. For septic shock, it's a subset of sepsis with a circulatory, cellular, and metabolic abnormalities. It's associated with a greater risk mortality than with sepsis alone. So septic shock is sepsis with end organ damage, right? Right. And the patient can be identified if the lactate more than 2 or if the need of the vasopressor to maintain MAB more than 65. So you mentioned SOFA score. What about severe sepsis and SERS criteria? Both are no longer considered in defining sepsis and septic shock. Instead, adult patients outside the ICU with suspected infection are identified by quick SOFA meeting two or more of the following criteria. Respiratory rate 22 per minute or greater, altered mentation, or systolic blood pressure of 100 or less. Now we will talk about another important type of distributive shock, the neurogenic shock, which is resulted from interrupted sympathetic and parasympathetic impulse from the spinal cord to the heart and the peripheral vascular, typically resulting from acute traumatic injury. Always look for the classic triad, hypotension, bradycardia, and warm extremities. Next, anaphylactic shock. It's a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction to the antigen, 
which is often life-threatening if not treated urgently. In another word, it's a severe form of allergic reaction. Once you have more than one system involved, adrenaline is your choice. Thanks for the great explanation. Now we will move on to the last type of shock, cardiogenic shock. Before we talk about cardiogenic shock, first we have to know the definition of cardiac failure, which is the clinical evidence of impaired forward flow of the heart, including presence of dyspnea, tachycardia, pulmonary edema, peripheral edema, and cyanosis. So cardiogenic shock is cardiac failure plus four criteria of shock that we mentioned earlier. So Dr. Ahmad, you mentioned lactate. Can you tell us more about the role of lactate and base deposit in a shocked patient? Lactate is a product of anaerobic glucose metabolism and it may be elevated in both hypoxic conditions as well as non-hypoxic conditions like catecholamine release. Lactate can help us assess how well we are resuscitating the patient although it's not the perfect test. The base deficit defines the metabolic component of the body acid base status, and it's normally minus 2 to positive 2. In a simple term, it shows how much the bicarbonate buffer system has been used up. The more acidotic, the more negative the base deficit will be. Excellent, Dr. Ahmad. So, in summary, a shocked patient will look ill, pale, sweaty, and confused, and will be hypertensive, tachycardic, tachypnic, and will have a urine output of less than 1 ml per kg per hour, which all indicate tissue hyperperfusion, along with a lactate of more than 2 and a base deficit of less than minus 2. Now we'll move on to discuss lines of management in shock. We have different lines of management like crystalloid, blood product, vasopressor and inotrope, antimicrobial therapy, corticosteroid, and systemic thrombolytic therapy. Starting by the crystalloid in adults, 30 ml per kg in septic shock, or 3 fixes of 20 ml per kg boluses in children. Great, so what about the choice of fluids? Any preference to normal saline versus finger lactate? There is no evidence clearly supporting one over the other. Resistance hypotension despite 30 ml per kg of IV fluid indicates the need of adding a vasopressor. Vasopressor like norepinephrine 5 to 30 mics per minute is associated with improved efficacy and lower rate of adverse effects, making the norepinephrine is the vasopressor of choice for correction of hypotension in septic shock, according to several randomized trial and meta-analysis. What about the second choice if you reach the maximum dose of norepinephrine? Well, you have the vasopressin and should be administered at fixed rate of 0.02 to 0.04 units per minute and should not be titrated. Lubethamine may also be used with the norepinephrine to increase the cardiac output and maintain adequate oxygen delivery in cardiogenic and septic shock. What about epinephrine? In septic shock, epinephrine alone, starting by 0.2 mics per kg per minute, provides similar outcome and adverse event rate as a combination of norepinephrine plus dibutamine. Moving to the antimicrobial therapy, when you have a septic patient where there is no source of infection, Start empirically with the piperacil lentazobactam, 4.5 gram IV, plus levofloxacillin, 750 mg IV, and vancomycin, 30 mg per kg. And don't forget to adjust the level or the dose for a patient with a renal failure. So you mentioned blood products. Can you tell us more about its role in shock? In case of hemorrhagic shock, onigetable blood is suitable for a woman of childbearing age and all positive of blood for everyone else. If your patient needs more than 2 units of packed RBC, 
we have to activate the massive blood uh, transfusion protocol, which is a balanced resuscitation using a combination of packed RBC, fresh frozen plasma, and the platelet. In case of septic shock, your target of a blood transfusion is hemoglobin dispensable. What about corticosteroids? Any role in shock management? Most current guidelines recommended that low dose of hydrocortisone can be given only in a patient receiving chronic steroid replacement and patients with refractory shock despite adequate fluid and vasopressor support. So keep adrenal shock in the back of your mind. And systemic thrombolytic therapy is indicated in a patient with a shock from pulmonary embolism without contraindication. And last but not least, what are the procedures that can help us in ER when we have a shocked patient? Rapid sequence intubation is a preferred method of airway control in most patients with refractory shock. Intraortic balloon counter pulsation and brachycutaneous coronary intervention in selected patients with cardiogenic shock. Pericardiosynthesis and thrombectomy can be used as a direct intervention in a case of mechanical obstruction by tamponade or massive PE. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Dr. Vedder, the mastermind behind this podcast, and Dr. Nadia, our sound tech. This is Dr. Adir and Dr. Rahul Sanyo.